In 2006, a self-help book catapulted in popularity. This was thanks in part to a small endorsement by Oprah. The name of the book, The Secret, um, which Rhonda Bryan discovered, it was neither new nor a secret. It's really what's called new thought spirituality that she distilled on a popular level. It, you might think of it as the prosperity gospel for pagans. The secret is the law of attraction, meaning that your thoughts both positively and negatively influence or control the universe. So using the right language, with the right energy, you can manifest a check in your mailbox. That new job, you could heal your own disease. You see how this has influenced culture in the way that we talk about um, sending positive vibes to one another. Listen to what Brian promises in her book in philosophy. In this book, you'll learn how to use the secret, that is positive thinking, in every aspect of life, money, health, relationships, happiness. You'll begin to understand the hidden, untapped power that's within you. The secret contains wisdom from modern-day teachers who have used it to achieve health, wealth, and happiness. They bring to light compelling stories of eradicating disease, acquiring massive wealth, overcoming obstacles, and achieving what many would regard as impossible. Impossible indeed. Nonetheless, the book would go on to sell 30 million copies in 50 different languages. The book gets at, I think, some of our most innate our most natural, though twisted, desires for health and wealth and happiness. She makes them not desires but needs, and she locates an almost a godly-type power to overcome our circumstances within. Well, in Philippians chapter 4, where we're at this morning, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there, Paul shares with us what is the real secret, the secret of life, I think. It's not the changing of our circumstances through ritual thought. It's the secret of contentment in Christ. It's not the promise of fulfilling all of our appetites as though our stomachs were God. It's the promise that we can endure all circumstances, not because of our power, though it is power within, because we've been united to and indwelt by the one with unmatched, never-ending, and infinite power. So if you have your Bibles, Philippians chapter 4, we finish the book this morning beginning in verse 10 through the end. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly because... Oh, sorry, I'll have you guys stand. If you don't mind, stand reading for the reading of God's word. Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through the end. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly because once again you renewed your care for me. You were in fact concerned about me but lacked the opportunity to show it. I don't say this out of need for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know how to make do with little and how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need, I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Still, you did well by partnering with me in the gospel. And you Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent gifts for my needs several times. Not that I seek the gift but I seek the profit that is increasing to your account. But I have received everything in full, and I have an abundance. I am fully supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you provided, a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. 
And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send you greetings. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. You can be seated. I hope to make two observations from the text this morning. Being united to Christ redefines need, and being united to Christ redefines worship. So being united to Christ redefines need, and it redefines worship. First, being united to Christ redefines our conception of need, of what is necessary for the fullness of life. To set the stage one more time, to give some historical backdrop on the book, Paul brought the gospel to Philippi with quick fruit in the conversions of Lydia, um, who was a wealthy God-fearing merchant in her household, in the conversion of a Roman jailer and his family, in the conversion of a former fortune-telling slave girl. Paul was also quickly beaten, flogged, imprisoned, and asked to leave the city. But from that point on, the Philippians became his closest, most serious partners in the gospel. He went to Thessalonica next. As we read, they sent several gifts to him there. He eventually ended up in Corinth for about a year or so. They sent him gifts there again on his third missionary journey, though at this time the Philippians are impoverished. They give not out of an abundance of wealth, but Paul says an abundance of joy in their poverty. Well, now Paul is sitting in a Roman prison. Not that being in an American prison is a good thing, but the Roman prisons are bad. It's not like a Holiday Inn. There's no free continental breakfast. They literally don't feed you. Paul's chained to a guard, and his ability to survive comes from the support and gifts of friends and churches. The Philippians hear about a situation. They send Epaphroditus with a generous gift for Paul. Paul receives a gift. He sends back Epaphroditus with this letter where he walks through some of Um, his concerns or issues with the church, and he finally turns to address the gift that they've given him. But he's going to use it as a means of pressing beyond the gift to instruct them. So look at beginning in verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly because once again you renewed your care for me. You were in fact concerned about me but lacked the opportunity to show it. Notice two things. First, Paul ultimately rejoices in the Lord. It's not actually in the gift. Paul's joy is in the Lord. And second, the reason he rejoices, again, it's not because of the money. It's because of their care for him. Paul's primary concern and his joy, therefore, is found not in his economic stability, but in the spiritual well-being of his children in the faith. Paul is not after their money. He's after their maturity. So he's not been sitting in prison praying that the Philippians would send him cash. He's been praying what we saw in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, that their love would keep growing in knowledge, that they would be pure and blameless on the day of Christ. So Paul rejoices in the Lord, not over the gift, but over what the gift means, what it reveals about the Philippians, that their love is indeed growing in knowledge. It is concrete evidence that God is at work in them, carrying them along. It's a display of their partnership with Paul, their confirmation and defense in the gospel. It is a display that they have fixed their eyes on the prize, that they are willing to consider other things, money included as dung compared to the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ. 
So his joy is not in the gift, it's in the Lord because of what it reveals about what God is doing in Philippi. Verse 11, I don't say this out of need. Paul's going to do this several times throughout this section. He talks about money and then he wants to give a quick disclaimer. Okay, so he's not bringing it up because, well, actually, you know, he wants them to send more money. He's not like maybe a young person would do around their parent trying to hint at the fact that (laughs) they could use some cash. Okay, I'm not telling you to send money. In fact, what Paul's getting at is my entire conception of need has changed. Look again at verse 11. I don't say this out of need for, again, this is one of those words we circle, we look at it, it's giving us the reason. I don't say this out of need for, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. So Paul's kind of walking this tightrope. He wants them to know he's grateful for the gift. They actually did the right thing, he says in verse 14, in partnering with him. But he's not after their money, but their maturity. He's going to push beyond this to teach them about contentment in Christ. He wants us to understand what Jesus gets out of Matthew 6, that there's more to life than what we eat and what we wear. So he elaborates in verse 12, I know how to make do with little, and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. There are two striking things I think about this, at least two things that hit me. The first one is that it's possible to be content when we lack. It's possible to be content when we lack, when we have little, when we're hungry, when we're in need. I'm confident we can press this further. We can be content when we lack that job, that dream job even, when we lack the spouse we desire, when we lack children we want, when we lack that degree, when we lack certain rights, when we lack health, when we lack a home. In all circumstances, contentment is possible. I'm not saying any of those desires are bad in and of themselves. And contentment doesn't mean passivity. Contentment is a satisfied trust in the Lord that transcends our current circumstances. Friends, don't believe the lie that the quality of life is found in your possessions. That the quality of life is determined by your bank account. If I just got blank, everything would be okay. I would encourage you to think about how would you fill that in. If I just got blank, everything would be okay. However you answer that question will reveal what you're running toward, what you're trusting in, what your source of joy and strength is. If you find yourself in abundance, you could flip it around and say, if blank were taken away from me, I wouldn't recover. The answers, if the answers to any of those things aren't Jesus, it's an idol and it won't deliver. So it's possible to be content when we lack. And I think the second thing we see, it's equally necessary to be content when we have much. It's necessary to be content when we have much, when we're well-fed, when we have an abundance. Again, pressing it further, it's necessary to be content when we do have that job, that family, that health, that home, that degree, that security. It's actually abundance that is the far more dangerous of the two. When you're experiencing lack or need or suffering, be it economic or otherwise, 
you feel on a more tangible level your dependence upon the Lord. You're a creature and you know it. You're probably quicker to fall to your knees and to abide. You know you need God's strength to get you to tomorrow. It's when things are going well, when you finally get blank, that we tend to forget God and want more. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, as Israel is on the cusp of moving into, the Canaan, into Canaan after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, the Lord speaks to them. Okay, they're moving from a humble condition, from being hungry, from having no home, into a land with produce and water and shelter. And again and again in Deuteronomy chapter 8, God commands Israel not to forget. He commands them to remember He commands them to keep in mind that it was God who led them through the wilderness to the promised land. Don't move from poverty to riches and grow arrogant, ungrateful, greedy. Those things lead to idolatry. So it's actually in our abundance that we often tend to forget God that we don't abide in Christ. But both poverty and riches lack and gain. They demand demand contentment because regardless of how much we have, we tend to look to our circumstances to our things, to things other than the Lord for life and security, for meaning and validation. If you're poor, you want more. Well, guess what? If you're rich, you want more too. The desire to bend a knee to our things as though they will grant us security and satisfaction, it doesn't change depending on our bank accounts. And so we need contentment in all circumstances. Something It needs to be based on something that's outside of us, something more solid than our shifting environment, something more more solid than us. And what Paul says is that he's actually learned the secret of contentment, and he gives it to us in verse 13. Look at the text. I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. We are able to make do with a little or a lot in all circumstances, whether hungry or well-fed, whether widowed or married, whether with or without children, employed or looking, whether we're lonely or surrounded, whether we're healthy or ill, tired or rested, we are able to do all things, not in our circumstances, but through him who strengthens me. In Christ, we get exactly what we need, which is the strength of God where we are weak. Notice, friends, we can do all things not as we grit our teeth, not as we adopt a more positive attitude. But we can do all things as God himself strengthens us in Christ. Just as we saw last week, what we most desperately need is not a change in circumstance. We need the peace of God, one that surpasses our understanding, and we need God's strength to carry us in our race to heaven. I find a lot of comfort in the fact that Paul says, and you might have caught it twice in this, that contentment was something he actually learned. It's not natural. It's something that we grow in by God's grace over time. I think Paul gets at this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and Paul speaks about a thorn that God himself gave him in his side. What the thorn is, it's unclear. It could be physical ailment, demonic attack. It could be a sin struggle. It could be persecution. But Paul prays three times to the Lord to remove this thorn. That is to change my circumstances. And God responds to Paul in verse 9. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. You see, friends, being united to Christ redefines need 
because it changes where and what we look to for satisfaction and strength to endure. And it's a satisfaction and strength to endure that we would never find in the things we previously thought we needed. If you think you need X to survive, whether it's money or health or relationship, it will sap you until it destroys you. But God in his kindness in himself gives us the strength to endure. It comes through him. I think this is important for us to grasp. This strength, it's not offered to us at a distance. It's not even something that we have to work for, but it comes to us in covenant relationship with Jesus, the one who has already grabbed a hold of us. He guides us through all circumstances. So while the strength doesn't come from us, it's not far from us because Christ himself dwells in us through his spirit. The New Testament authors, Jesus included time and time again, they give us metaphors to get at this idea of being united to Christ. It's like being in a marriage. It's like the relationship between your body and your head. Um, It's like being a part of the same building, being a part of the same temple. It's this vital, organic, covenantal, spiritual union. We have been so connected with Jesus that our life is hidden in him, and his life gives us strength. Jesus uses the metaphor in John chapter 15 of the vine and the branches. Apart from the vine, he says, we can do nothing. Our ability to bear fruit like patience and peace and joy and contentment that transcend our circumstances, it comes from abiding in the vine that is Jesus. It's those circumstances that often lead to anxiety and greed. What we need is more of Jesus, and he gives himself to us fully. One of the annoying things about buying a new phone, not initially, it's like you buy a new smartphone and the battery lasts for like two days. <laughs> you feel like you never have to charge it. Well then, before you know it, you're charging it every day. And then before you know it, you're charging it a lot every day. And if you use that thing long enough, it won't work unless it's plugged in. Well, the Christian is a bit like a phone that holds no charge, but has unrestricted and unmitigated access to the source of all power, God himself in Christ through his spirit. Consider how Paul prays for the Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 3, I pray that he may grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner spirit, in your inner being through his spirit. And then in verse 20, he says, Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. God's power is able to do above and beyond what we could even think to ask, which is to say it's infinite. And it is currently at work in us by his spirit. Friends, I wonder where are you looking for strength to endure the race? Is it within? Is it your circumstances? I wonder where are you looking for satisfaction? Are you believing if I could just have blank? Do you believe that you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you? Are you seeking to abide in him, in prayer, in word, in sacrament? Being united to Christ, it changes our conception of need, what we need for satisfaction and strength to endure suffering as we wait for Christ's return. And it also, union with Christ, it redefines worship. Being united to Christ redefines worship. Paul goes on, verse 15, 
And you Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even in Thessalonica you sent gifts from my need several times. Verse 17, not that I seek the gift. Paul again, he touches on money and he's quick to give a disclaimer. Not that I seek the gift. Paul, over the course of his um, ministry as an apostle, he was very careful about who he took support from. And this was because the Roman Empire was littered with the equivalent of prosperity preachers. Both philosophers outside the church, pagan philosophers outside the church, and heretics within who would fleece the poor. So Paul, his habit actually was not to live off support of the church he was ministering to. Even though he was right as apostle, he would oftentimes labor as a tent maker, not because being a bivocational pastor is the best practice, it's because he didn't want the congregation to think that the gospel costs money. He wanted them to know that grace is free. So he would work with his hands until support came in from elsewhere, from a church like the Philippians. Okay, so he's, he's wanting to distance himself. I'm not after the gift, but he's going to press further into the gift because he's going to show us it's a means of growth and worship. He's not after the gift itself, but what after the gift produces and reveals. So again, look at the verse. Not that I seek the gift, that is, I'm not after your money, but I seek the profit that is increasing to your account. Paul cleverly puts his ministry and their maturity in banking terms, in accounting terms, because he's talking about giving. In chapter 1, he puts his ministry, their, mature, their maturity in agricultural terms. Philippians 1.22. Now, if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me. In chapter 2, he puts his ministry and their maturity in old covenant ritual or cultic terms. You'll recall, but even if I'm poured out as a drink offering... On the sacrificial service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. Well, here Paul's putting it in accounting terms. When you give sacrificially in faith, though your earthly bank account decreases, your spiritual account, your maturity, so to speak, increases. This is because giving is itself an act of trust and contentment. We are telling God when we give, you can provide for me even as I give you what I think I quote-unquote need. So giving both produces and displays maturity. That's what Paul's after. He's not after their money. He's after their hearts. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul writes to the church in Corinth, I will not burden you since I am not seeking what is yours but you. Friends, if you ever think Joshua and I are after your gold and not your growth, you should fire us. Plain and simple. But that is not to say we don't care about your giving. We do because we care about your hearts. We are seeking you. Our wallets, perhaps unlike anything else, reveal where and when our hearts are, here or in heaven, now or eternity. Consider what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Where we put our treasure is where our hearts are. So Paul's not after the gift, he's after them, after their hearts, their holiness. You see, Christian growth in godliness is normally accompanied by regular giving 
because it's one of the primary means by which we participate in gospel ministry, and it's one of the means by which we actively choose in trust to serve God and not money. And as we'll see, it's one of the means by, we act, by which we actually worship God. If you think about the word worship, it comes from two words, worth and ship. What you're doing in worship is you're giving an evaluation of something. You're saying, I think you are worth this much. But when we give to God, we are declaring that he is worth more. He is of more value than anything we can give. This is what Paul is after, verse 18. But I have received everything in full. I have an abundance. I am fully supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you provided. You maybe have caught this, but their giving does something for three different people, you could say. For Paul, it supplies him, the gospel ministry. It does something for the Philippians in that it's an exercise in growth and maturity and trust in God. But notice, our gifts are ultimately for God. Listen to how the text describes our gift. Look at verse 18 again. Paul says, describing what he received, our gifts are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. In the Old Covenant, there were several different types of sacrifices, and they had different functions. Some of them more explicitly atoned for sins, right, as your sins were, so to speak, passed on to the animal, as it died in your place and God's wrath was placated. Some of them were more for the purpose of having fellowship with God. It was like having a meal with God, right? There's meat, there's grain, there's wine. In every case, it was costly for the worshiper and God was worshiped. At least when it was done in faith, it was fragrant. It was pleasing to God. Every Sunday, and on Sundays only, um, Jess makes cinnamon rolls. They're not store-bought. She makes them from scratch. She bakes them. Some of you have had them. They're like really, really good. So we do this only on Sunday. The kids, Jess puts them in the oven while the kids are still in the room. Anyways, the, the fragrance of the cinnamon rolls, it makes their way back to the room. And the kids, they'll come out of the room yelling, cinnamon rolls, cinnamon rolls, it's the Lord's day. They've come to associate cinnamon rolls with church. This morning I was reading through my sermon, and opens the door, he says, it's the Lord's day. I said, how do you know? I can smell cinnamon rolls. Right, the fragrance of the cinnamon rolls, it gives the kids pleasure because for them it means sweets and fellowship with their parents and church, which also means for them more sweets. Well, in the case of all these sacrifices, when the animal was offered up and burned in faith, the smell of the sacrifice would rise up to heaven to the nostrils of God, so to speak, and, and it would be fragrant to God. It would bring him pleasure as he would look upon the sacrifice and the worshiper worshiping in trust through something that for them was costly. The problem, of course, for most of Israel is that they practiced this as an outward ritual. It was supposed to be manifestation of worship that was in their hearts, but they were just doing it externally. Samuel rebukes Saul with what will be a common refrain in the Psalms and throughout the prophets. Does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? Look, to obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention is better than the fat of rams. So over time, Israel, they're not offering sacrifices in faith. Not offering sacrifices alongside a life of obedience. They were not fragrant, not acceptable, not pleasing to God. There was a bigger problem that the 
old covenant package, it required something from us we couldn't give. True, worshipful obedience to God. What we needed was not an external law, but forgiveness of sins and a new heart imprinted with God's law. We needed a better lamb, a once and for all sacrifice. We needed a better means of access to God. Well, the prophets, like in the text we read in our corporate scripture reading, they looked forward to a time when all that would happen, a new covenant with the ability to worship God in a way that pleases him because our sins have been dealt with once and for all. Paul gets at this in Ephesians chapter 5 when he remarkably uses the exact same language to describe Jesus. He tells us to walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us, a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. And so God himself becomes a man to deal with our sin problem, which is really a worship problem. That in our sins we refuse to worship God and instead turn in on ourselves. But in Jesus Christ, we see the perfect God and man who lived on our behalf as our covenant representative. He then died on our behalf as a spotless sacrifice and lamb to deal with our sins as high priest. He offers offers himself to God to satisfy God's justice and to turn his wrath to pleasure. We believe that this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you are visiting us as a non-Christian in particular, we would encourage you to talk to any of our members after the service, ask them, what is the gospel? We believe that in Jesus we have forgiveness of sins, that we have the ability to now worship and enjoy God for all of time. Friends, our being united to Christ redefines worship because it makes it actually possible. To be in Christ is to be clothed with Christ, to stand before God as a son and daughter. It means that all of our worship, whether loving our neighbors, singing in the gathering, or giving gifts to God, it's all mediated by Jesus, our high priest. All of the gifts we give, the worship we offer, it comes to God through Christ. Listen to what Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by people but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built up to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Our spiritual sacrifices are acceptable to God, not because of our good deeds, not even because of our faith. They're acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So our worship is not viewed on its own merit, but the merit of Christ. In the case of our giving, as imperfect as it is, though we give with mixed motives and we waffle in trust, and as little as our gifts are, God looks upon the gift as though it were given to him by Jesus Christ himself, which is to say it is perfect and pleasing. When we worship God in all of life obedience, giving included, it puts a smile on God's face. It's fragrant, acceptable, pleasing because it's given to him in Christ. So friends, while it's true that animal sacrifices no longer continue, that would be a bad application of the text, it would be wrong to say that sacrifices altogether have ceased. The whole of Christian life is to be a sacrifice to God, Romans 12, 1 and 2. And it finds a very pointed expression in monetary giving because it's so costly. When we give, we worship because we are saying, you are worth more than my money. You are more trustworthy with my life than me. 
you can do more with a little that you can do more with a little than I can with a lot. So union with Christ that transforms worship, it makes it possible and pleasing. And apart from the strength and satisfaction we receive in Christ, we wouldn't want to do it. We would cling with all of our might to our treasures, but instead we look upon the costly, the costly love and gift of Jesus. We give what little we have in response to his great love toward us, and God accepts it in Christ. If that weren't enough, Paul goes on, verse 19, and my God will supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. It ends with a remarkable promise that God will actually meet all of our needs in Christ. And I think that means all of our needs, even considering the needs we've seen in the book. The perseverance we need is the state in our neighbor's turn of the persecution. The boldness we need in sharing the gospel, the discernment we need to fight off false teaching, the love and humility we need to walk in unity this season, the strength and contentment we need that in our circumstances. And I think Paul is saying that God will take care of our material needs. He did for for Paul through the Philippians and he will for us. This doesn't mean there aren't times of hunger or little. Remember, our union with Christ, it redefines need. But I think Paul is assuring us that even as they're giving out of their poverty, that God will actually meet their needs. It is as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, that we are to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things. That is our basic needs will be given to us as well. And God is certainly capable of doing so. Look at the text again. It says, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. It's subtle, but it doesn't say that he will give to us or supply our needs from his riches. He gives to us in accordance with, in keeping with, in proportion to his glorious riches in Christ. Jeff Bezos is the richest person on the planet. He's worth just shy of $186 billion. I don't know the exact number. He won't respond to my texts. But if you were to ask Jeff Bezos for a house, something he could certainly do, he could give all of us houses. And let's say he said yes, he would give to us from his wealth, not in accordance with his wealth because he doesn't know us. Now, if you were united to Jeff Bezos, let's say you were his body or his spouse or he adopted you, now you're asking him who is your father for a home. He's not giving to you from his riches, but in accordance with, in proportion to his wealth. If the father is as loving as he is rich, he's going to be lavish upon his children. Brothers and sisters, God supplies our needs in accordance with his infinite, glorious riches in Christ. If we are in Christ, the rich one treats us as heirs. Friends, it's basic economics. If you give away your money, you have less. And Paul is promising that God will meet us in our deficit according to his infinite surplus. <clears throat> I'm not saying Paul's offering some prosperity gospel. If you sell one, I'll give you 10. I'm not saying you'll have a meal on your table every time. I'm saying that Paul is promising that God will treat us like his children because we are. 
If he would send the son to die for us, he will see us through to the end. I don't know about you, but I've, I've never met a Christian who's been walking with the Lord for a long time to describe God as unfaithful. Never. I've never heard, yeah, God provided for us some of the time, but most of the time we had to look elsewhere. Now, this isn't the climax of the book. That's chapter two. But I think for the Philippians, this has to be maybe the sweetest promise that as they are giving sacrificial, sacrificially toward the ministry of the gospel, that Paul is telling them where you are lacking, God will supply you with strength and contentment, with peace, and he will supply your material needs. Paul can't help but to break out into praise, Romans, or verse 20. Now to him, now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. And our book comes to a close, and I think in doing so, Paul hits on all of their concerns at once, at least their major concerns. First, their unity. Look at verse 21. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. Not just Euodia, not just Syntyche, but greet every single saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet with me send you greetings secondly the question of the progress of the gospel in the midst of paul's imprisonment and rome's persecution look at verse 22 all the saints send you greetings especially those who belong to caesar's household this is like a mic drop yeah i might be in jail nero might be trying to stop the gospel but he can't even keep it from reaching those in his own home like he's chained me but he can't chain god the imperial guard have heard the gospel. Those who serve on him in his own house, he can't even stop them from bending a knee to Jesus. So no person, no president, no persecution can stop the gospel from going forth because no one can stop God. And lastly, the question of perseverance. Verse 23, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Friends, what God has begun in us by grace a good work he will finish. He will bring it to completion. We will gain Jesus Christ and be made like him, glorious, free from the taint of sin and the curse. And he does all this by his grace. Until that day, we run by his grace toward the prize that is God calling us home in Christ Jesus. It is a gift from grace to grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have united us to your Son, that you have made worship of you something that's even possible, that you hear our songs this morning in pleasure, that you receive our gifts with pleasure, our preaching with pleasure because of the merit of Jesus Christ. We pray that we would seek to offer you worship in all of our life, in our obedience, we pray that you'd be honored in the way that we live. We pray that we would um, seek to do the things that we've heard in the book of Philippians. We pray above all that we would seek to abide in Christ, that we would run after him by your grace. We thank you for your kindness toward us in him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.